And on this night of despair, confusion, and disorder, as uh, all the pundits are looking at the market and asking what happened, we're going to ignore it because uh, we'll interpret it for you on Wednesday when we've got a special panel set up and when the dust has settled. Instead, we're going to look at what has been happening, what was happening during the years 1981 to the beginning of 1987 at Langley, Virginia, at the headquarters of the CIA, where uh, William Casey ran it uh, as a very, very personal operation, or so it doth appear as one reads Bob Woodward's superb new book of uh, closely dug and... Uh, and closely uh, documented investigation of the reign of William Casey at the CIA. The name of the book, Veil, The Secret Wars of the CIA, 1981 to 1987. Bob Woodward, welcome. It's very nice to have you here. Thank you. Uh, Just to, for openers, and not as the major theme of our conversation tonight, but this one incident, and the press has paid some attention to it, that you do report and that you uncovered, gives you something of the flavor of the man. I read from, indeed, a press report that was summarizing your book. Probably more significant is Woodward's revelation that Casey arranged with the Saudi Arabian ambassador in Washington to have a hit squad assassinate Sheikh Mohammed Hussein Fadlala, the leader of the terrorist Hezbollah faction in in Lebanon. The scheme failed, but some 80 other people were killed in the explosion. Later, Woodward claims Casey arranged to pass a $2 million bribe to Fadlala, who in return, surprisingly, kept his promise to call off terrorist acts against Americans. It really sounds like the sort of thing you get in espionage fiction of the more fanciful variety, as if written by... Not a Le Carre, but that other Englishman. Ludlam. Or Ludlam or yeah, somebody. Well, well but it, it's real, and it, it absolutely happened. Uh, and the significance of this is not only that one of the worst crimes was committed, assassination. I mean, that's the scarlet A of American politics, in that many innocent people died, but that that didn't work, so they turned to bribery, stopped all the car bombs... What was the other terrorist problem they had? The hostages. Casey, from that experience of bribing Sheikh Fadlala in Beirut, got the idea for the Iran arms sales. Let's get the hostages back. We will bribe the people holding the hostages. Who, they, who are they? They are influenced by the Iranians. What does Iran want? Arms. Thus the Iran arms sale. The man had tremendous power. I have talked to Admiral Stansfield Turner, uh, who uh, was his predecessor in that position, and though Turner doesn't tell all in the book that he wrote and is obviously still circumspect in many ways, it's very clear from read the reading of that book or from the press accounts we had of his reign at the CIA when he, during all of the Carter years that he ran um, a less adventurous CIA and that also he was much more caught up in certain of the limits imposed by proper bureaucracy. And indeed, one wants such people to be limited. You want a kind of a check of, uh, and balance of powers within an outfit like the CIA and a balance of power against the CIA within government. This man seems to have had almost uh, free reign to do whatever he wanted. Yeah, th- that's quite true. Uh, Bill Casey and Ronald Reagan were really soulmates. Uh, two years difference in age. Both had seen four wars in this country. Uh, seen the Depression, believed in capitalism, hated communism. So Reagan was the kind of guy who saw in Casey the buccaneer, the 
capitalist, the risk taker, the guy who would go out and shake up the CIA. Interestingly enough, in Vail, I talk about Stan Turner at the CIA very briefly at the beginning. And uh, yes, it's true that his CIA was not nearly as adventurous. You revealed that he was still somehow hoping that Reagan would keep him on. Yes. Which must have been a very unrealistic aspiration. On I, I, I think it was, but he hoped that he could keep the CIA out of politics and didn't want a guy like Casey coming in who had managed uh, Reagan's uh, successful presidential candidacy in 1980. But Turner himself, interestingly enough, found that he could not move the CIA to take risks. Uh, for example, I talk in there that, that Turner uh, thought, let's find some politician in Guatemala. It was one of the countries in Central America. It's still war-torn, where we can support a centrist politician. And the CIA bureaucracy, these operations officers, would have nothing to do with it. So he couldn't move them. Interestingly enough, in the book, The Six Years of Casey's Reign, one of his wars was with his own agency. He kept trying to get them to do things, and they didn't want to do it. They had been burned in the 70s. They wanted to be very, very careful. As Casey's second deputy, John McMahon, said, he said, our job at the CIA is to analyze the information we've gotten, steal secrets, not so much to conduct covert action or to conduct covert action interfering in events abroad in a very careful, modulated way. Of course, there's covert action and then there's overt covert action. Uh, the terms have become very confused in recent years. And, of course, inevitably one harkens back to the Iran-Contra hearings which uh, ran over the summer because that gave us still further illumination of just how strange the whole process has become. It's quite clear to me that it was established in the Iran-Contra hearings that Casey was running the operation. And indeed, Colonel North virtually acknowledged that to be the case. But at any rate, we have to go back, it seems to me, to the beginning of the Reagan administration exactly. and That's to their focus on Central America. I did have a conversation a number of years ago, three or four years ago, with Alexander Hay when he did his book, mm -hmm. Caveat. And it's very clear that as he thundered into the Secretary of State's position, uh, he pointed to Central America as the place where we can make a, a strong point to all the world. This lay down a marker. Go to the source. Go to the Cubans. Stop the Cubans mm -hmm. from helping the Nicaraguans and so forth. And all of this sends a signal to the Soviets as well. In a very important way, Haig thought. But Haig could not get his program through the White House, which was interested in uh, economic reform package. That year. That year, yes. It's interesting in light of what's happened today. Mm -hmm. And so they had to go the covert route to support the Contras uh, in Nicaragua, to put pressure on the, the Sandinista So you take it away from there. state and you give it to CIA. Exactly. And Casey had the action. He took the action. He wanted the action. He loved the action. And he said, not, not just playing defense of stopping the Soviets. We're going to go on the offense. We're going to win one back. And that was you over six years. Were you tempted theme. to say we're going to win one for the Gipper? Well, I was, and I restrained myself <laughs> and, and did not. But the, the idea was in Central America, Africa, the Middle East, whether it be Iran, Libya, someplace in Southeast Asia, we want a country 
that has fallen under the Soviet spell brought back to the West. That's what Casey said, and Reagan agreed. Now, we got a number of things revealed in your book about the whole Nicaraguan matter, which I had never seen as clearly laid out and as um, definitively established in terms of hard evidence. One of them is that really from the very beginning, the Contras were our invention. We found them, we paid them, we organized them. The Contra is a CIA army. It, it is, totally, and we used the fig leaf of the Argentines who were initially training the Contras, but that was all a phony when you really get down to so it. So who are these guys? Well, the, the Contras are disaffected rebels, people who want power, who don't like what happened to their country. More and than they are Somasistas? Yeah, I think so, though some of them are uh, are connected to the old Somoza regime. Uh they are, as somebody described them to a certain extent, the hell's angels of Central America. And they are a group that, that Casey and Casey's deputies created. And they went down there and they said, we, this is the one we are going to win. It was, of all of Casey's covert operations, it was his pet. It was the one he cared about, the one he personally managed. And interestingly enough, in going back and trying to put together how this operation began, uh, was able to uncover in the research some very important facts about the nature of the deception to the American people and to the Congress about what the, the operation was. Well, from the beginning, the line through as issued through the press and also as pronounced in... Uh, hearings before the House or the Senate Intelligence Committee, the line was, well, what was it? It was just essentially was, we're, we're aiding was, our... No, I mean, the, the line was oh. quite clearly we're going to stop the spread of communism. And, we're, and more particularly, we are interdicting the shipment of weapons from Cuba through Nicaragua to uh, El, Salvador. El Salvador. Exactly. So it's an arms interdiction program. And we are really stopping something, and we do, we want to pressure the Nicaraguan government, which is close to Moscow and to the Cubans, to 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 stop exporting their revolution. Interestingly enough, crucial fact: in the spring of 1981, before the covert operation began, the Reagan administration, operating through its ambassador in Nicaragua. Lawrence Pizzullo, was able to achieve with diplomacy a cessation of the arms flow in El Salvador. So they'd won with diplomacy. Then they took away the ambassador's carrot in the bargaining deal, which was about 5 or $15 million worth of aid to the Nicaraguan mm -hmm. government. And they said, you're not going to get any more. So the arms flow started again. Instead of going back to diplomacy, which should always be the first choice of a country when they are trying to achieve some purpose, trying to affect, influence some foreign government, so the they immediately yeah. turned to covert action. So the overriding purpose really was, let's knock over that government. Indeed. No matter what kind of public line was being pronounced, whether for press or for Congress. From the beginning, Casey wanted to win one back. And again, uh, in the research, in the interviews with Casey and hundreds of other people, you a portrait 
emerges of this extraordinary man. Well, on this particular matter, he was strongly opposed by his second-in-command, by Admiral Inman. He was, very definitely, but he didn't care about He just cut Inman out, and that's why Inman, in 1982, resigned, yeah. because he didn't like what was going on in the Contra War. He saw that uh, Casey was not leveling, particularly with the intelligence committees in the Congress. And Inman had a very good relationship up there, and he saw, he really forecast the disaster that came to visit upon us in the Iran Contra. You say a portrait begins to emerge of the man. Can I try? I, I know you're a portrait because I've read your book with utter fascination. Let me impose a psychologist's speculations hmm. on it. The um, Casey was how old when he died? Seventy-four. Seventy-four. So when he came in, he was he in was, his. Oh, let's see, six years. He had a six-year reign, so he was 68. He'd already had cancer of the prostate, hadn't he? No, not at that point. He was going to have later on. All right, he's 68. He's not getting any younger. Mm -hmm. He's been uh, a very skillful lawyer of a sort around the financial community, around the Securities and Exchange Commission for a few years. He piled up a fortune of some seven or eight million dollars. About ten million. Ten million. But he's... What's a million or two between friends? But he's been living, essentially, an ordered Wall Street kind of life with his... A period of service in Washington. Yet, he's one of Donovan's original boys, supposedly, from the OSS. In World War II. In World War II. As you get older, as some of the powers are beginning to wane, that's the time when the Wayne in you asserts itself, the John Wayne in you. That's the time when anything that reasserts your vigor and your masculinity is somehow of psychological value. Well, I think the plum of running the CIA gave him an opportunity to turn into a, a super macho character, more than he might have been in the 20 preceding years, with memories of Wild Bill Donovan to sustain him. Certainly, and, and I, I think a lot of that analysis holds a great deal of water. In OSS, in World War II, he was not only one of Donovan's boys, he was one of the beloved inner circle. And at age 30, Donovan appointed... Casey, chief of secret intelligence or some term like that, to drop spies behind the lines in Nazi Germany at the end of the war. They had no spies there. In a matter of months, Casey created 60 teams of spies. He used prostitutes. He used prisoners of war, contrary to the Geneva Convention. He learned something that's very important for an intelligence officer, necessity. You look at necessity and you balance it with opportunity and you get the job done. And he got the job done. So all this time passes. He takes over the CIA in early 1981. Like all of us, he's a prisoner of his experience as a young adult. And he looks back and he said, in OSS, what did you do? You broke the rules. You broke the law. War was hell. We're fighting the communists. We're fighting the Sandinistas. We're fighting, you know, terrorists. We're we're fighting the Libyans. What's Casey's rule of thumb? You break the rules. If necessary, you break the law, and you get the job. But do you buy my suspicion that at another level, an extra meaning here is, by God, I'm young again? Yes, I think that's right. But I always think... If you look at Casey's life, he was he was always a risk taker. Was he? And I think if this had happened 20 years ago, he would have run a very rambunctious CIA mm-hmm. then. 
I, another thing I learned, and this was just astonishing, funny, and also uh, really disturbing, that for a long time the real intent was to, in essence, cut Nicaragua in two, give the yeah. eastern half of Nicaragua to the Contras and let the other guys keep the western half. This is one of those things that happens in a closed, top-secret hearing in Congress before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Casey's deputy, who was in charge of the Contra War, went before the senators, put up a map, and said, here we have 50 CIA officers running the Contras, and we're going to split the country in two. He drew a line, as it were. And, and, and by splitting it, we'll put pressure on them. Barry Goldwater, who was chairman of the committee, <laughs> turned to Senator Moynihan, who was sitting next to him. Moynihan was the vice chairman and said, it sounds like war to me, <laughs> which, of course, it is. And it was. But it was top secret. They couldn't talk about it. They thought, well, Casey must know what he's doing. The president must know what he's doing. And so, lo and behold, no one blew the whistle on them, even though... When you go back and look at it now, it's quite evident that it was war. <clears throat> and with all of that adventurous uh, operation in mind, with all of those rather fantastic plans, there are those who were still seriously raising the question, did Casey know that of the diversion of funds from the Iran arms sale to the Contras in Nicaragua? As if there could be any question of that. I want to turn, after some upcoming commercials, to the link between Nicaragua and our adventures or misadventures in the search for release of the hostages and the search to otherwise affect the balance of power in uh, the Persian Gulf area of the Middle East. We return directly to Bob Woodward as we continue to draw from his rich new book, Veil, The Secret Wars of the CIA, 1981-1987. That book, by the way, just published by Simon & Schuster, and we return right after these words. And we return to Bob Woodward as we continue to draw from his new book, Veil, Simon & Schuster, the publishers, as if I have to tell anybody the name of the book. It is, of course, uh, the first listed among the nonfiction bestsellers on all of the lists uh, this week, and we'll stay that for some time to come. Though ultimately to be replaced by a book which somebody is starting to write tonight, explaining the crash, or the meltdown, as it was called today by one official, of uh, 1987. That's right. You know, uh, Casey was chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission under Richard Nixon mm -hmm. in uh, period 1973. And uh, I asked Casey a number of times about his investment his investment philosophy it was quite simple some go up some go down you win some you lose some he said you have to take risks you have to make judgments this is the way he ran the cia mm -hmm. too in the covert operations and uh he he was one of these guys who liked to go around and and spot the starting of a business do some legal work Instead of taking legal fees, he'd take some of the stock, mm -hmm. so sock it away. He invested in some of the wildest things. Well, I was wondering today, uh, as I was getting ready for the program and looking at your book, which I completed a few days ago, I was wondering 
just what's happened today to the Casey portfolio. There's a, a chapter <laughs> here or a section in which you talk about the management of his investments, his refusal to put them in an absolute blind trust, though eventually he yielded on that point. He, he did finally under pressure of his deputy, who, yeah. uh, John McMahon, who said, well, just come on, do it. It but looks bad. It's speaking about your contacts with Casey, a question has arisen, as of course you know, and I'm not referring to the question of the last scene in the book and the, hospital, the deathbed uh, interview, yeah. but rather... Actually, it was not a deathbed. He was in Georgetown Hospital in, in Washington, and he went home after that, mm -hmm. and then he went up to Long Island, uh, another home he had, and then went into the hospital yeah. in Long Island and died in May. But the, the broader question that has been raised is, how did Woodward get this much access to Casey. What was the basis of that relationship? You say you had some 50 or so interviews with the man. That, that's correct. Uh, I did, and it, it's a matter of record and, and well-known and, and documented in the book. He dealt with me for a number of reasons. First of all, he knew I was covering the CIA and the CIA activities for the Washington Post. In 1981, uh, another reporter at the Post, Pat Tyler, and I did a story on a man named Max Hugel, who was Casey's uh, deputy director mm -hmm. for operations, ran the covert side of the CIA. No background in covert work of any sort at all? None. And uh, we got some tape recordings of uh, with some other businessmen that Hugel had dealt with a number of years uh, prior to that time, raised some questions about his business activities, all of which Hugel denied. But we ran the story, and he resigned. And I think Casey thought, well, that's interesting. Then we did a story on the the first story in 1982 about the president approving the Contra operation. Then I was doing some more things, and I started approaching Casey and said, I'm going to write about this. We are going to cover the CIA. It's the hidden of hiddens. It's an important agency. We're going to look at it. He knew I had sources inside, so he kind of had to deal with me. Uh, in a way, we were adversaries. In, in a way, we were friends. We had some long two-hour interviews and discussions. We had some short screaming discussions on the telephone. I would guess he's not unaware of your work with Carl Bernstein in the original book, All the President's Men. You are, after all, an American reporter who, together with your partner Bernstein, really ser helped to topple a president of the United States. Indeed, one might ask if Bernstein, if Woodward and Bernstein hadn't got onto that story, uh, might Richard Nixon still have remained president? You clearly are somebody to be reckoned with when it comes to investigative force as a leading journalist. And I suppose, since he knew you were looking at the CIA and knew that you were indeed Bob Woodward, it was probably just as well that he make some kind of connection with you and try to... Shape the story. Shape the story. And, and, and play defense, which he Hamlet did. Hamlet says when dying to, La to Laertes, report my cause aright to the unsatisfied. That's precisely the case. And one of the things I said to him, and he knew, is I wrote dozens of stories about the CIA during this period for the Washington Post, I would let him have his say. Yeah. Uh, for example, in 1985, uh, I, was do I was doing the story on the covert operation to undermine Gaddafi. Called him up on a Saturday and said, tomorrow, Sunday, we are running this story. I know the president has approved it, has signed a, a formal intelligence order called the Finding. And uh, he said, oh, I wish, you know, some other people wouldn't run that. Kind of tried to talk me out of it. 
but then called me back and said, well, if you're going to say it, say that we're not trying to assassinate Gaddafi, the leader of Libya, but that we are simply trying to stop terrorism. Well, I let him have his say. Mm -hmm. And I always did. He gets his say in this book. A number of readers of it have said uh, it's basically a sympathetic portrait of Casey. Uh, in fact, I don't know whether that's true or not true. I know he is allowed to explain himself. I also know at the end I do make a judgment that he broke the law, was wrong, and in some respects ha has blood on his hands. Uh, well, we, I mentioned the one thing, the blood in the, the, the bombing in Beirut, the attempted assassination, which killed 80 other people rather than the intended That's right. target. That's the thing I'm referring yeah. to. Uh, let's go to the Persian Gulf, which is a very interesting and very relevant area this very day. We have hit that platform, which a former uh, offshore oil platform and used as a base, apparently, for those little mosquito boats of the, um, of the Iranians. And in the process, this time we didn't kill any Iranians, but we have destroyed some an important military installation. Iran says it is at war with us, though they haven't declared war. When the re reporters asked, mm -hmm. is there war uh, today, the president shouted back at the helicopter or at the White House, the Iranians aren't that stupid. They wouldn't take us on in a war. It may not be a war, but it's hostilities, and it isn't over yet. Who knows who will hit uh, who or whom tomorrow. Uh, go to the... To Casey's influence on that towards the beginning of his I, I, reign. I think it's very important, and in, in, in Vail, I attempt to chart the whole CIA and administration policy toward Iran. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of Casey's reign at the CIA, he was very, very much obsessed with how President Carter and Stansfield-Turner had screwed up the hostage crisis. And been humiliated by, had, the, by them, actually. And so he vowed he was going to watch Iran and he was going to make sure we didn't get caught off guard. And we started a policy of supporting the anti-Homeini exiles, covertly, people who wanted to overthrow Homeini, including the Shah's son, the so-called baby Shah. And we, in fact, at one point supported a secret transmission by the baby Shah when he appeared mysteriously on Iranian television to say that he would return, somewhat like General MacArthur. It's worth remembering one of the great achievements of the CIA in an earlier era <clears throat> was putting the Shah back on the throne after Mohammad Mossadegh had uh, overthrown his regime. That's they brought right. the Shah and his then-wife back from Italy or someplace, and that was done by Archie Roosevelt and a small team of CIA people. Th that's a Kermit Roosevelt. Kermit Roosevelt. Th yeah, that's Kermit. right. It was, and... Twenty-five years later, there's the Khomeini revolution, and now what, what have we got with Iran? Not much of a relationship, and it may be decades before that is repaired. But again, look at what the policy overall in, in Casey's six years was toward Iran. We're going to support the exiles that want to overthrow Khomeini. Then we are going to trade arms with Iran. We are going to embrace them and try to deal with the, the so-called moderates in the government. Now we're trying to discipline Iran. What we've got is a policy that's inconsistent, incoherent, and it, it, it confuses me. I'm sure it confuses the average 
person on the street, it confuses the Iranians. Maybe they don't know a, what to expect. Bob, maybe it's an application of uh, uh, a theory developed by an old friend of yours, Richard Nixon's madman theory. Make us unpredictable in the eye of our antagonist. Well, but I, I, I don't think that works. I think that somehow the, the responsible attitude has to be, look, we are going to deal straight with people. We are going when we have a public policy, no arms sales. We aren't going to do it secretly. When we have a public policy of we, we want a, a better relationship or we're neutral in the Iran Iraq war, we've we've got to kind of stick by our guns. The problem is that Casey, with the support of the president, kind of thought, well, we can do these things under the table. We'll have a secret foreign policy, and we'll pull tricks on people, and we will achieve our purposes that way. Now, in the middle of all of that, and it's a very complicated matter, which we can't uh, get into in full detail in this conversation, you spent a lot of uh, pages on it in the book, but in the middle of all of that, there is lodged something which got special attention, which we came to call the Iran-Contra affair. Let's extricate that and examine it. Well, it, it is it is kind of the the final act in this play of Casey's six-year tenure at the CIA, and they became uh, this to find some umbrella thought to put it all together. What happened is we're conducting the Contra war. Congress finally doesn't like it and cuts off funding. Stands up courageously and says no. We are also trying to get our hostages back. We, as I explained earlier, it, there's this sequence of events, and we, we, and particularly Bill Casey discovers that bribery will work. So they need a pool of cash. They take the profits from the Iran arms sales, and as we now know, very little of that money made its way to the Contras. There's about $8 million left in Swiss bank accounts for the Ali North Enterprise <clears throat> to do these off-the-shelf covert operations. The what fund... Casey was doing is looking mm -hmm. for a pool of money to do dirty work worldwide in an unaccountable way. Without having to be beholden to the CIA itself. That's correct. Well, um... That leads to the inevitable question. The one doesn't want to be disrespectful, and uh, one is aware that the man at present is burdened by many problems, not the least uh, concern about his beloved wife. But one must ask, and I raise this question just as we sneak away to some commercials. I hope we can turn to it after that. How closely involved in scrutinizing his appointee was Ronald Reagan? Was Casey, in fact, executing for Reagan with a fair amount of room to improvise, but following a directive laid down by his boss, or wasn't the boss really the boss at all? And I trust we can go at that directly yes. after we pause for these words. We return to Bob Woodward of the Washington Post um, and the author of Veil, The Secret Wars of the CIA, 1981 to 1987. Uh, the book is published a few weeks ago. It's every place because it's the bestseller in the country at the moment, published by Simon and Schuster. I don't know whether Harry Truman actually had a sign on his desk saying the buck stops here, or whether it was just his slogan. Which was it? I don't. I, I think there was a sign. There was a sign, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was the case until 
uh, Admiral Poindexter during the hearings announced that the buck stopped with him, <laughs> which <laughs> confused me and still confuses me. Absolutely incredible statement by Poindexter mm-hmm. to say that the captain of the ship is not in charge. It's the it's the guy down in the engine room or the weapons officer or something. Well, was it possibly because uh, they knew that the captain of the ship isn't really watching very closely and isn't isn't a detail man? Isn't all right. That's a I, polite I th- way to put it. I think that's right. I mean, we know President Reagan is not a detail man. Well, what is he? Well, he he's responsible, and whether he knew or whether he didn't know, he's accountable. And and the interesting question to ask: Did he know? And the answer is we don't know. I could construct a case that. Casey had to beat a path into the Oval Office as fast as he could strut and tell the president about what Ali North said. You know, we're, it's the great sting. We're getting the Ayatollah mm-hmm. and Iran to give money to the Contras. I can also construct a case where Casey, the master of deniability, the master of the covert covert operation, would have not told the president or asked his permission. On other matters, would he also have operated with that degree of autonomy, as, for example, the attempt to knock out the head of the Hezbollah? um, Don't know the answer to that, and I wish we did, and I think there is a whole series of new questions that really need to be asked in the Iran-Contra investigations to go back and ask about the counter-terrorist operations. Who was in charge of the counter-terrorist operations on the National Security Council at the White House? Oliver North. That was his primary job. He spent most of his time on that, not on the Iran initiative or the Contra initiative. Now, translate counter-terrorist operations into particular operations. The Achille Loro thing uh, is one example, and that, we know, was run by North. What else? Uh, well, I, there were a whole series of still top-secret compartmented operations which we don't know about. We know that, uh, and I talk about some of them in general terms in Vail, some of them were with uh, other Mideast countries to rescue the hostages or to discipline the people who held them. Discipline. Kill? Oh, I. it's possible. Mm-hmm. It's possible, but the only one I was absolutely sure of is the one involving the leader of Hezbollah yeah. in Beirut. Well, the image one gets of the president is uh, in this book is that by his very absence, he seems an inattentive uh, captain, if he is the captain of the ship. I, I think that's fair. Uh, in fact, at one point, uh, I was flying back uh, from New York with Casey in the spring of 85, just after a very crucial Contra funding vote in the House of Representatives had been defeated by two votes, Casey was burning, and he unloaded to me about Reagan and said, Reagan is lazy, Reagan is not watching the store, is not paying attention to Soviet expansionism, and this was not... uh, Hostility, it's like anyone who's ever been mad at the boss, because I think Casey's basic feelings toward Reagan were were feelings of reverence and affection. But he was mad because he knew Reagan had these, these powers to communicate. 
and could whip up support for things. And if he'd been, he, Reagan, had been working harder, he would have won those two votes, and they would have got that contra funding. Mm. Change of pace. Purely personal terms. You saw a lot of the man. You've written the ultimate study of him. Uh, how did you feel about him? Did you like him at all? I liked him in, in some ways. I had some respect for him. Uh, he, he was a cagey man. He was somebody... That could be likable in itself. Yes. And, 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 and for a reporter, the, the nicest thing to have happen when you call somebody up and you say, I want to come see you about X or whatever, they'll say, come on over. Or you call them up and they call you back. Never once in four years did Casey not call back. Never once did he say, no, we, we, I won't talk to you. He was always available. And uh, as I look back on it now, I wish I had taken, I, I had availed myself of his availability more often and talked to him a hundred times, mm -hmm. not fifty. Personally, the image one gets of him is uh, a bit of a slob, rather ungainly, rather uh, awkward, mm -hmm. and uh, rather incoherent. Not, not that he isn't very bright, but... He hasn't mastered the art of rhetoric or of public performance, he especially. He mumbled. Mumbled, and, and uh, as his mind would go faster than his mouth. Yeah. And so he would get in, and it would just kind of roll off into incoherence. He was not a passionate uh, speaker. He mm -hmm. was a passionate thinker and feeler. He was a man who opened himself to ideas and people uh, on a range that uh, is equivalent to no one I have ever met. How long have you been on the CIA beat? You do so much at the Post, but uh, you've really been looking at the CIA for a long time, haven't well, you? Well, it really goes back to Watergate. Yeah. When uh, Carl Bernstein and I were working on Watergate in the summer of 72, uh, the, uh, I think it was less than 12 hours after the Watergate <coughs> burglary, uh, went to the local court in Washington, and the chief burglar, James McCord, announced with a whisper mm -hmm. when asked by the judge where he had previously worked that he'd worked at the CIA. No. Watergate was in part a CIA story. Uh, well, a the year has not gone by yeah. in my reporting at the Post when I haven't done a story or lots of stories about the CIA. Because the burglars were run by an old CIA hand, namely Howard Hunt. That's right. Yeah. With all of your close scrutiny of the CIA and the extensive work you did in the preparation of Vail, the secret wars of the CIA, 81 to 87, what about that organization? Why do we always have so much trouble with it? Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful question. Uh, they, are, they have, in a way, the impossible assignment. Predict the future. We know you can't. But that's their job. The, they put out these reports that are called national intelligence mm -hmm. estimates. Well, they're estimates. They're guesses. And when they do predict the world, or when they do say it looks like there will be a revolution in country X, then somebody at the White House or the State Department or the CIA director will say, stop it. Let's prevent it from happening. Let's... We predicted the future, now let's make sure it doesn't happen. Or the CIA will come along and say, we're going to have trouble in Nicaragua or Libya, 
and somebody at the White House will say, well, let's get rid of that guy down there. We don't like them. Let's put our friend in. So let's influence events and make them better. And again, now, these are impossible tasks. And I think one of the lessons in all of this, when you know, for those who will go through all 500, 500 pages of this book, you have to say, we need to have more realistic expectations for the CIA. We need to really ponder the assignment. We need to understand more fully the limits of predicting the future and the limits of covert action. We can't change the world. Every time we try, we make a mess of it. It seems to me that every time we get a new director in there, that new director tries to develop a new look and tries to somehow reorganize in a way that is distinctive from what his predecessor did. And that's true of Judge Webster right now, I think, isn't it? That's exactly right. Uh, Judge Webster, the new CIA director, is uh, in the mold quite contrary to Casey. He was a judge, ran the FBI for 10 years, and has said publicly, we will now conduct intelligence operations by our own rules, according to the law, and in conformity with the values and principles of this country. That means no assassination. That means uh, not a lot of dirty operations. Bob, apart from all of the things we've talked about already, what, and not necessarily of great importance, but just of great surprise, what was the most stunning thing you stumbled upon? Or, I shouldn't say stumbled. You don't stumble. The most stunning thing you dug out. I, uh, there are many examples in Vail where... Something was said publicly, like Al Haig, when he was Secretary mm -hmm. of State, came out and said publicly, the Soviets are behind world terrorism. The CIA did a secret study, had a horrendous debate and catfight, which is described in the book, and concluded that, no, Haig is wrong. The Soviets are not behind terrorism. They take that report, it's stamped secret, a few people can look at it, and the record is never corrected. And, and that, I think, is what surprised me, particularly for Casey, who had some, I, who was somewhat of a realist, to make political and public statements and then have intelligence information or analysis that contradicts that and to not correct the record, mm. I think, is a, is a crime and a, a, a mistake. It screws things up when there's bad information mm. out there. Time to pause again for some commercials, and it is time as well for me to invite telephone calls. The number is, as ever, 591-7200, 591-7200. Tonight, certainly, we're interested in long-distance calls. Uh, the matters we're discussing are of interest every place in the country. The area code 312 then 591-7200, 312-591-7200. We try to give long-distance calls quick priority. The lines are open. We await your calls, and we'll be right back to Bob Woodward and to you after these words. Here once again is your host, Milt Rosenberg. Thank you very much, Floyd Brown. Uh, the number is 591-7200, 591-7200. At the moment, that's not worth much to you because... 
uh, all the lines are taken. But if you want to get through, then <clears throat> the proper strategy, of course, is to call again after we've said goodnight to somebody else. And we turn directly back to Bob Woodward. The new book, Veil, is just published by Simon & Schuster. And, Bob, I'm going to get out of the way and let all these people talk to you. Here's the first. Good evening. You're on the air. Bob, I've been wondering if you could comment as to whether there have been any real covert successes long term, or are the successes only the ones that you can't talk about? Well, that, that's one of the things the people in the CIA frequently say. We can never talk about our successes. Uh, they tend to come out, and they tend, as we were talking about earlier, to, when you really look at them, not be successes, exactly. N namely uh, putting the Shah in Iran. What is the price we have paid for that now that we have the Khomeini regime? That is, uh, Khomeini is there because of the deep resentment embedded in Iranian society and in, in the people there toward the Shah, toward the ugly American presence that uh, we had in that country for a quarter of a century. And their special animus towards us is based upon that. They're, well, much, more, they're, they're much more negative towards us than they are, say, towards the English. Oh, they they mean the great, when they say the great Satan, they mean it. It really worried me that in the joint congressional hearings, it was sort of a tacit understanding that there were some valid reasons for Oh, I think there are valid reasons for covert operations. You could think of instances when we uh, got some of the hostages out in 1979 uh, uh, of the American embassy in Tehran, uh, the Canadians assisted. You can think of times when there might be somebody who is going to uh, assassinate somebody or there's a terrorist incident uh, coming down the pipeline that we can spot and that you somehow screw it up or uh, uh, put in uh, talcum powder instead of gunpowder. Okay, so there are some cases where you can differentiate between what we might call offensive and defensive operations. I think so. Well, and of course, it's very important, as I know you would agree, to differentiate between covert operations, which is what we've just been talking about, and the mere accumulation and interpretation of intelligence, which no government these days, perhaps no government through history, could ever really manage without. Certainly. You, you need a CIA. We need a good CIA. And they have to be out there. Uh, Casey's beat was the whole world. He just couldn't say, well, I'll do Africa this month and in Asia next month. He had to look at the whole world all the time, and we need to know. The question is, uh, do we get to the point where we cross that line and say, well, we know something, and we're going to be able to fix it? Now, I don't think we can fix mm -hmm. those things. That's not a personal or a political conclusion. That's based on the evidence uh, of Casey's six years in. You sure appreciate their intelligence function every so often. Even I appreciate it personally. One night I was doing a program with a famous American political observer, Norman Podhoretz, mm -hmm. who had done a book titled The Present Danger, in which he told us that the Soviets, uh, of course, are stealing the march on us and are going to dominate the world militarily unless we beef up our arms budget. And though he didn't give numbers any place in the book except on one page, on that one page he reported that in the decade of the 70s, the Soviets had outspent us by a ratio of three to one on total arms procurement. That struck me as rather off, 
and I didn't have much time and didn't have time to get to the library, so I called the friendly CIA mm-hmm. and found the right office, the office that does the Soviet military profiles and so on, and they gave me the correct figures, which were that they had outspent us by... Uh, they had spent about 25% more than we did rather than 200% more than we did. I see, and then uh, is... I talk about in the book, in discussion one night with Casey at mm-hmm. his home for dinner, about these numbers of how much the Soviets spend worldwide, or the specific issue in that discussion was how much the Soviets spend in the Caribbean. And he said it was $4 billion. But then he added, he said, those numbers are flaky, mm-hmm. that you really can't trust them. They are, again, estimates. So I think often, you know, whether it's 200% or uh, 25%, if you looked at the data behind that, you'd be appalled. Well, in this case, the mistake was not by the CIA. It was by uh, the author I was talking to who had misread an article by Drew Middleton, where Middleton, reporting on this very study released by the CIA, said the Soviets outspent us by about 30%, and our author interpreted that to mean 300%. I see. 591-7200 591-7200 is our number. We've now got some lines available again. If you've been trying to get through, try quickly, and you may be one of the people who makes it. 591-7200, good evening. You're on the air. Oh, hello? Yes, sir. Uh, I have a question, uh, and I've been wondering about it. Excuse all me, sir. Is this, a, this a long-distance call? Yes, Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City, good. Glad to hear from you. Uh, uh, my question is, I've been pondering over this oh, off and on for quite a long time. I want to know if, if our author there if he has any feeling that there was a time that either the president or any of his closest advisors felt that he was any, any, under any serious risk of impeachment or an impeachment trial, and if perhaps if any of them in the White House feel that they beat the rap. Well, I... If, if you get the gist of what I'm, you know... Certainly. Sort of I think uh, it, during the Iran-Contra investigations, which, by the way, both in the Congress and by this independent counsel, Judge Walsh, are continuing... Uh, I think there was never any real serious discussion about impeachment of the president. Uh, On the issue of does the White House think that they beat the rap, I think to a certain extent they feel that. As a journalist, it, it, it seems to me that that story is not over. We still have a report coming out of the Congress, those investigations, inquiries, uh, are going down new avenues and new roads, some of which have perhaps been opened by uh, this book. Uh, there are a lot of unanswered questions in all of this. But the don't political you... reality is I don't see impeachment. But to put it cruelly, uh, isn't it really the case, just as a matter of uh, fact, that the death of Casey in a way got them off the hook? In, in part, if Casey had things to say... Uh, he might have uh, spent a lot of time testifying, trying to answer questions or dodge them. And either it would have been established that the whole thing was organized by him without full report to the president, or that it was organized by him with full report to the president, but the president somehow was inattentive or uninvolved. Or somewhere in between. The president might have known some of it, or it might have been presented in a way where the president didn't remember it or didn't comprehend the import of it, or maybe he did completely. Mm. Reagan and Casey agreed that we needed to do something about terrorists, that we needed to do something about communism. Uh, Probably most people in this country would agree. I would agree. We've got to do something about those things. The the question is, what Mm. techniques are we going to employ? Is assassination, bribery, 
deception, etc., the way, or is there another way? Let's thank the caller in Oklahoma City, and let me, uh, picking up directly on that, sure, uh, was assassination the way, that is, was it our intention in the ultimate Libya raid? I think so. If, uh, I've got some new data which has not received uh, any attention in here, and we, maybe we should spend a moment on it. I think it's a fascinating section of the book, the stuff on Libya. Yeah. What uh, happened in the eventual raid, and, and just to lead up b- before the uh, April 86 raid, our policy with Gaddafi, he was a menace, is a menace, supported a number of terrorist activities around the world. Our policy was basically a policy of provocation. Let's put a stick in his cage and wiggle it around and try to get him riled up so he'll do something stupid. The first provocation being our backing Habre in Chad, is that right? That's right. Very good. Going back to 1981, Casey's first secret war launched, or at least the idea of it, Casey's third day in office. he, He hit the ground running, as they say. So you you have that policy of provocation in Libya. When the Libyans were responsible for the bombing of the disco in Berlin in April of, I think, around April 4th, 1986, we did get the goods. Casey's intelligence people delivered the messages which we had intercepted that said, look, the Libyans ordered this. Uh, actually, there was a, a celebratory telegram back from the the, the embassy, the Libyan embassy in, in yeah. Germany. So we conducted the raid. But what you make clear is that the raid was on the books, uh, that is on the planning books. Uh, the contingency plan for it had been fully elaborated already. We were waiting for the proper provocation. Exactly. In fact, the the first contingency plan for bombing Libya was drawn up by Bill Casey. Yeah. Uh, and some other people in December of 1981, five years, a little less than five years before it occurred. In the raid, in the new information is, we sent about eight or nine F-111 bombers to bomb Gaddafi's barracks, the so-called Splendid Mm -hmm. Gate barracks. It's not a, a big compound. Each of those planes was to have four 2,000 pound bombs. A number of the planes had to turn back. Some of the bombs did not hit, and only maybe two, maximum four, of those 2,000-pound bombs landed on the barracks. If all of them had landed, or even half of them, Gaddafi would be dead. You look at that plan... And so would lots of other people. That's right. You look at the plan, and clearly we wanted to knock him off. By the way, why didn't we get more bombs on target? It was a high-tech failure. Was it really? Yes. As some critics of our line of development in conventional military technology have said is likely to be the case whenever we try to use the high-tech that we've been buying. That's uh, that's correct. I mean, sometimes you push those buttons with that e- exotic equipment and nothing comes out the mm. other end. Uh, we are going to pause again for some commercials. There are now some lines available, and so if you want to join us, now is the time to call 591-7200, 591-7200. Right back to your questions for Bob Woodward after these words. And directly back to Bob Woodward, who having helped topple a president, having uh, exposed what happens behind the doors at the Supreme Court, having chronicled the last and very sad days, 
though the long career in the last sad days of John Belushi has now uh, done what is, I think, the ultimate book on the CIA, especially during the period of the last seven years, the period in which uh, William Casey ran the place. Veil, The Secret Wars of the CIA, 1981-1987, is just recently published by Simon & Schuster. Our phone number, 591-7200, and here's the next caller. Good evening. Yes, Mr. Woodward. Yes. Uh, do you believe that Casey had anything to do with flight KL-007? No, I don't. I think that, uh, in fact, in one of the discussions I had with him, I asked uh, Casey about the Korean uh, airliner that was shot down uh, by the Soviets uh, in 1983. And Casey said, uh, even though, the, this is interesting, that even though the president was saying publicly at the time that it was an intentional, deliberate act of barbarism by the Soviets, Casey said their intelligence showed that it was a foul-up, that the Soviets screwed up. Uh, again, this is an example of their private analysis and <coughs> intelligence contradicts what's put out in public, and they never corrected the record publicly. I happily, or at least attempt to, in the book. Have you uh, seen R.W. Johnson's book on that? I've seen, yes, I have. You have to balance that one with Cy Hirsch's book on the very same subject. That's right, and I think Cy's book is the definitive one, and it, it raises some questions on this topic of the administration isn't doesn't deal straight with the public on things. Well, thank you. Thank you, sir, for the call. Okay. And on to another. Here is the next. Good evening. Good evening, gentlemen. A comment and a question. First of all, my comment is that I think, to me at least, it's fairly obvious that the CIA was trying to uh, trap Gaddafi and get an excuse to, um, to retaliate against him and to assassinate him. Um, all along, when we were intercepting these secret coded messages, I didn't read any attempt, um, I didn't see any attempt made to stop it, to stop the bombing in Berlin or to warn the officials there. And um, the second question being um, that from what I understand, during the latter part of uh, Mr. Woodward's interviews with Casey, of course due to his failing health, um, many of the answers were perhaps not, how can I put it, well, he didn't have his full wits about him. And I'm wondering how much of the information he, he gave is uh, reliable. Well, I described Casey's physical condition uh, after his operation. Uh, he, he was lucid in that conversation I had with him in the hospital. Uh, quote him saying in maybe four or five minute discussion 19 words and that's it he said those 19 words uh, on a personal level if you'd been there you would have said yes indeed that's what he said and and that's what he meant on the contra diversion he didn't say anything he only nodded yes uh, is that evidence is that something to rush into the newspaper with uh, the answer is no obviously. Uh, is it a deathbed confession, as some people have said? The answer, I think, is no. As I pointed out, it was not his deathbed. Uh, to a certain extent, perhaps, it was a confession that, of course, he knew. And if, if you really think about it and you look at the other information in the book, you see Casey always had his finger on the pulse. What's new? What's going on? What's <laughs> happening? And this was a big deal. He had to know. And, of course, we have testimony from Colonel North that Colonel North regularly reported to Casey. They met constantly. 
what in the world were they talking about, if not this, among other secret operations? Uh, I agree. And I had my interview with Casey uh, before Colonel North's testimony. I wrote it. It is a matter of record with my publisher that this was before we even knew that North was going to testify. Our uh, thanks to the caller, but let me pick up on a related matter, or at least I free associate to it at this moment. Again, uh, in this case, the caller made reference to your visit to Casey in the hospital. Um, there was this brouhaha right after the official publication of your book where Casey's widow, so- uh, Sophia, isn't that her name? Sophia. Yes. Sophia Casey, uh, said, and the daughter also backed this up, Mr. Woodward was never in that hospital room. No one was allowed. We, One or the other of us was there through all the day and all the night during all the time he was in the hospital. This is simply a lie. Uh, I don't believe that. I don't think she's lying. I think she's confused. Uh, And I know you're not lying. She's trying to defend her husband, uh, whom she loved very, very much, and he loved her. Of course. It was one of the great marriages, in fact, and I've I've talked to, Mm -hmm. in the course of these interviews, talked to both Casey and Mrs. Casey about the marriage, and what they both said about it is that it had no fluctuation. But satisfy the curiosity of the listeners and of uh, the readers, how did you get into the hospital room when supposedly uh, the CIA was blocking everybody from coming in? Well, uh, first of all, it is much harder to get top secret documents, of which I quote many Mm -hmm. in the book, than it is to get into a hospital room. Uh, As I have said, obviously somebody helped me. Uh, I wish I could give more detail on that, but one of the hallmarks of uh, my reporting efforts is to protect sources, and I will do that, uh, and so I'm not going to go beyond what is in the book. Anyone uh, who works their way through the book sees the relationship I had with Casey, the up-and-down nature of it, of long talks and screaming sessions. He once called me and said, I would have blood on my hands because of one story uh, I had written. We'll see why that is in the book, why in context it it explains kind of the end of a relationship. Of course, Mrs. Casey went further than that. She said right after your book appeared uh, that you had never had any relationship with, thus any contact with her husband. Yeah, and then she wound up in becoming one of my best witnesses and said, well, let's see, there's six or so meetings documented at the CIA. Every time we would see Bob at a party, Bill would say to him, hey, Bob, how's the book coming? And then Mrs. Casey insisted that I had never, never, to quote her, been in their home mm-hmm. and was as certain about that as everything else. And I just said, well, don't you remember the time you served us breakfast, for example? And she said, oh, yes, I do remember that. That was a stag breakfast. I don't know what they were talking about. Um, Look, she she deserves uh, a salute, and I give her a salute. She, uh, as Casey once told me, uh, in one of the more interesting interchanges I had with him, when he was referring to her, he said, Sophia, that's one of the advantages I have over Smiley, referring to John le Carre's hmm. fictional spy hmm. chief, hmm. George Smiley. He saw, and if you, those who've read le Carre yeah. will know that Anne Smiley was the adulterous, self-centered, mm-hmm. and Sophia Casey was the opposite, loyal, dedicated, unself-centered. 
um, a sufficient answer and a very interesting sideline on the whole process. 591-7200, our number, and here's the next caller. Hello. Hello, sir. Good evening. I want to comment on the use of the phrase, dirty tricks. I think that's an understatement of the media, and you use the same phrase yourself, which is a common that's for the media to use. But I think if the Russians used, did the same things that our CIA is doing, and probably they are doing, but if they used it, the same things, we would refer to it as dirty tricks. We say it's atrocities. We say it's horrible, monstrous. I, I think the caller is right. I think you. I am now not going to use the phrase dirty tricks anymore. You're right. It, it, it is. It's assassination. If it's an attempt to overthrow government, if it's covert action, if it's if it's propaganda, if it's lies, if it's deception, it should be called that. In some cases, cases it is. is. Yes, I agree. And that's done in the name of this country. It's not just done in the name of President Bill Casey. That's how we are known. And I think it needs to be said and defined. Well, I those actions as a nation. Parroting our own tribal line, tribal government, certain certain holiday occasion. In what way is this intelligence organization different from all other intelligence organizations? Well, as we pointed out, the current director of the CIA now, William Webster, says we we aren't going to do it that way. Well, they will find some. They will still do covert operations. They may not do assassination. But, but as the caller says, not calculated terror. That should never be the policy of this country. If we have to get down to conducting operations of calculated terror, which, by the way, is a very good phrase, uh, I think we're, we're off the tracks ourselves. What's it all about? What's this country about? It's not about calculated terror or assassination, hopefully. Except there's a kind of, moral, a kind of logical, almost cognitive dilemma. Since what... Basic to the craft of intelligence is the maintenance of deniability for all operations, whether they are merely gathering information or whether they are covert. Uh... Yes, but there's a difference between the passive and the active, the passive gathering of intelligence. Okay, if we want to put a, a bug in some foreign mm -hmm. minister's office, fine. And we think it's important to know what's going on there. We think there, we're not going to get caught. Fine. If we get caught... Yeah, no, I fully agree so with that. Uh, I, I meant to make a different point. It's very easily made. Even if Webster says we won't do that anymore, he's got to maintain deniability, and uh, one lies about doing that. So how do we know that we're not going to go on doing that anymore? You have to take the measure of the man. Yeah. Well, you also have to ask whether the man is in full control of all the plans and all the operations cooked up in the organization. Yeah, fair question, and this, this is one of the questions my editor at the Post, Ben Bradley, always asked about the CIA for years, and he still asks it, mm. is it under control? Yeah. Who is running it? Who knows everything? Does the director know everything? Um, my f general feeling is almost everything. Uh, I think Webster is you the sort of guy... In Webster's who, case? Yeah. In Casey's case, too? Well, I think Casey was the one who would maybe run around the chain of command and find yeah. some operations officer and say, hey, go do that. Let's do something here and don't tell anyone. Casey liked that man-to-man, uh, person-to-person style of, come on, let's go pull one off. Let's do it. 
So Webster will know what all of his department heads are doing, but in Casey's regime, not all the department heads knew what Casey was having some of their employees doing. Precisely. <laughs> there are many variations you could play on that whole That's question. right. It, it's hard to, uh, you know, not just the CIA, but the State Department or... Any bureaucracy. Your, your radio station sure, or any university bureaucracy. or the yeah. Washington Post. Who knows whether the person at the top mm. knows everything he or she is supposed to know? And the answer generally is no one knows enough. Mm -hmm. um, but the job of the good investigative journalist is to uh, disclose, to unfold, uncover, and then disclose uh, what everybody's been doing in areas of relevant policy and relevant use or misuse of power. I think it is, and I think it's something that's got to be done uh, with more aggressiveness rather than less. I think that we know too little, particularly when it comes to these kinds of self-defining actions that are eventually become public or we are <clears throat> seen in the eyes of the world this way. Have you just now given us a version of your apologia pro vita sua, of your sort of the definition of the ultimate moral purpose of your craft? Th that we can't stand not to know. Uh, some people will say, well, we can't, we can't stand to know. I'd say the opposite. Mm -hmm. I think that it's very important to get it out. That There are some people who have said of this book, oh, no, not again. Here we go. Uh, do we really need to know? Uh, need to know? Not necessarily. I can't make a case for that. I can make a case for, let's present the possibility of knowing. Well, your general conviction is we may not always need to know in the sense of life or death, but it's good to know. And that, let's put it this way, somebody has, somebody should know, and the information should be available. When I say need to know, I mean, people yeah. can decide. Uh, whether they want to read this, uh, some of it or part of it, or <coughs> or burn it. It's up to them. A point well made, I would say. Um, and if you need to know or want to know, uh, Vale, the new book by Bob Woodward, is just published by Simon & Schuster. We'll be directly back to your questions for him after these words. Why in the very first publicity on your book, an ad in Publishers Weekly, when this was still untitled, but Simon & Schuster was letting us know it was going to be published, where you referred to as Robert Woodward. Uh, and now, once again, uh, on the spine of this book, as always were all the books that you've written, you are called Bob Woodward. I don't know the answer. You, did you know they did that? No, I didn't. A new book, untitled by Robert Woodward. And I said to my producer, now, who's Robert Woodward? That name's familiar. It took a moment <laughs> to realize why that's old Bob Woodward. 591-7200, the number and... The next caller. Uh, this is long distance, I believe. Is that right? Uh, yes, sir. How Wh are you tonight, Mr. Where are you calling from? From uh, Wisconsin. Wh what city? Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Good. Glad to hear from you. Oh, glad to be listening. I have a question for Mr. Woodward. I'm mm -hmm. a uh, young individual who I've been listening to the show tonight, and to be quite frank with you, it's, it's scary uh, to, to listen to some of the things that have been said with this whole uh, charade that had gone on. Um, uh, with the the uh, with Mr. Casey and and the rest of it, but what what upsets me is as a young person, we're we're taught when we're young what is right and what is wrong, and it seems like when we get older, it seems like all the rules and things change. And uh, some of the some of the questions that you, and answers that you're bringing out um, are 
it's it's unbelievable. Is this something that is, is constantly going on? Are we going to constantly see this, or like in the case of Mr. Casey? Well, as uh, Oliver North said, it's a dangerous world, and I think it is a dangerous world. And the question is, how are, is the government going to respond to it? In Vail, I attempt to lay out the building frustrations and attitudes that Casey had and explain, it's, it's kind of, as I was saying to somebody earlier, a, a why done it, why Casey did what he did, with the explanation, uh, I agree with you at the same time that it's scary, that it we, we shouldn't break the law, that that's what makes the country different. And I think everyone values that. I think Casey valued that. And I think he got caught up in his own uh, juices to a certain extent, his feeling that we had to act that we had to do something that the political and intelligence damage from not being able to stop the terrorist, not being able to get the hostages back, not being able to control events in our own hemisphere, Central America in particular, and he went off the tracks, and there's no excuse for that. Right. Can, I sir, you, can I ask you one more question? Go ahead, sir. Uh, why did Mr. Casey take Bob Woodward... Uh, let's say, under his wing and, and, and seem to give this to yourself. I, well, well I he did, we already discussed that earlier tonight, really, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, that he didn't hand out things, that uh, he responded to questions and information I had from hundreds of sources. And uh, the point that I was making earlier, if Woodward's going to be poking around and investigating the CIA and investigating Casey at the CIA, you'd better play along with him rather than uh, so that you might control what... Uh, he has to say, not that you can influence or control by by intimidating, but you might as well get a fair hearing. Well, I try to give a fair hearing and uh, go beyond that and let the book uh, have many, many yeah. pages where, where <coughs> Casey's hearing is, is right yeah. there. So it he was in his that. interest to cooperate, obviously. That's right. But yeah. he knew, and I think learned very quickly, that I, when I came to him, or we talked about something, I already had sure. much of the story, and that I was going to test everything he said. This is the technique that you and Bernstein used in the original work on Watergate, yes. coming to people and disclosing that you already knew a great deal of the answers that you wanted, and did they want to be heard, because they were involved in the particular aspect of the whole drama that you were now consulting them on, and they had the choice of remaining silent or revealing what they knew. That's right, or... Attempting to lie and stonewall and stiff yeah. it out. Yeah. Casey, I think, uh, was not the, the, the kind of person who dealt that way with the world. He never avoided the confrontation with me or with anyone I know. With that, back to the phones. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, if there's any background noise, I uh, apologize, but I'm at work on a loading dock, <laughs> so I hope you'll bear with me. But uh, I, I just, uh, I noticed the conversation is almost entirely regarding the CIA, and uh, isn't it actually true that most of the overt intelligence, probably 85%, that's yes. not, that's... Uh, Good heavens. Well, hold on one second. <laughs> no, it's all right. I know what you're, I, I know from our advance 
processing. The gentleman is interested in the NSA. He was about to say, doesn't oh. 85% of our intelligence come from the National Security Administration? Um, it's the National Security Agency, agency and, right, and, yeah. and this is the super-secret intelligence group agency You've that intercepts... you stuff on them in the book, in fact. ...intercepts communications w- worldwide. Uh, I wouldn't say 85% of our intelligence, but much of our intelligence does come from them. They are passive gatherers of information out of the air or tapping into underground, undersea cables, uh, getting things from microwave stations and so forth, everything around the world. And one of the sub-themes, perhaps, of, of Veil is the extent to the of the invasion of the world's privacy by our intelligence agencies and their capacities is not realized by people. They can tap telephones without ever getting into your house or by the phone lines. They can get room conversations without breaking in. Absolutely extraordinary things can be done. Barry Goldwater once said in a light moment when we were having difficulties with the Soviet Union, let's lob one into the men's room of the Kremlin. I suppose we can't yet be that precise in our targeting of nuclear missiles, but apparently you can listen to what's happening in the men's room of the Kremlin rather easily. Perhaps. There are, there's stuff in your material on NSA which really quite astonished me. I knew that there is a spy technology of high sophistication. I didn't realize with what pinpoint accuracy they can go at just that sort of bugging. That's right. And it is miniaturized. In fact, uh, at one point I discuss uh, Casey himself out of frustration putting a bug in the office of of an official in the Middle East. He asked, when I asked him about this, that I never, ever disclose where this was, so I'm not going to do it. Of course not. But by the, because it's a very dangerous uh, part of the world, in fact, one of the things that needs to be said, there is much specific information left out of this book. This is not a laundered version. It's got a lot of detail in it. But things that would be damaging to our capacities, I did not include, and you could write another book that includes that information. By the way, how do, you, de- book by, how do you decide what that you've got in your uh, briefcase, so to speak, is dangerous to national security and therefore must not be included? Do you make that decision by yourself, or did you seek advice from the CIA? Oh, no, I never sought advice from the CIA. I uh, sought advice from sources and experts in the field. I learned in the course of my years of interviewing what the standards are, and the basic standards are you want to protect sources and methods. For example, I name a number of human sources by name, rank, almost serial number in the book. Who are out. But, But in each case where I name one, it's somebody who later defected or was killed or arrested, like or that whatever. fellow on the Polish general staff uh, Th- that you right. mentioned, from whom we had information as to uh, the coming crackdown on solidarity. Uh, that was one of the great intelligence coups. Uh, Colonel Kuklinski mm-hmm. uh, on the Polish general staff in 1981 was giving what's called real time intelligence, the documents and the data about the planned effort by the Soviets to crack down on solidarity. We had the plan. We had everything but the date. Then he went to a meeting one day and with the Soviets, I believe in Warsaw, and some Soviet said, 
everything's leaking to the United States. This is an outrage. We do not, or I do not know how they knew we were getting it. And the colonel voiced outrage with the rest and then went back and gave a signal, which was prearranged, and he was uh, extracted, he and his family, uh, what's called an exfiltration rather than an mm-hmm. infiltration, yeah. out and is now uh, living under an assumed name in the Washington area. Hmm. Um, a last commercial break, and then right back for a few more quick questions to Bob Woodward. First, these words. Some quick words about programs to come. Tomorrow night, Charles Colson will be here, an old friend of yours, as a matter of fact, Bob Woodward. Old Watergate conspiracy. Exactly yes. so. But he's in a different business now, and he's a very devout fundamentalist Christian who is interested in the and concerned with Christians asserting themselves in the political process in this country. Uh, joining us in the conversation will be Jim Wall, who is the editor of Christian Century and a liberal Democrat as well as an ordained minister. On Wednesday night, a special program that we're now putting together on the recent decline, to say the least, in the stock market and its broader consequences for the American economy. Also, two nights from now, we'll know a little bit more about whether things are sinking still lower or whether we're beginning to regroup and recover. And Thursday night, Robin Winks of Yale University will be with us, who's done a fine book about the CIA and the OSS before it and the predominance of uh, Ivy League types uh, in those organizations. And Friday next uh, this week, a lighter program concerned with great actors of the Western world. We'll talk with two friends of ours who know a great deal about acting, and we will play excerpts from the performances of many great uh, figures from both uh, the stage and from uh, screen performance. With that, we rush back to the phones, and here's the next caller. Good evening. Yeah, I know it's important to cover your sources, uh, but uh, to give someone else, well, my opinion is, and it's been said by others, that there is a long-running battle in the intelligence community, basically, those for active measures in personal intelligence and those in the other side are basically bean counters and adding up big piles of data and information. Uh, the first bunch are what are called paranoids because they have a different approach to communists than others. And the others are just going to, you know, the side that is currently dominant, that was dominant under Carter and was dominant through the uh, church committee, is the bean counters. The uh, passive uh, react slow and only use primarily mechanical intelligence. Uh, your work is basically, in my opinion, in the opinion of others, uh, partisan on one side there in behalf of the uh, sources who are actually rather well disguised. Okay, that's a fair... uh, And properly so. uh, The uh, passive and bean counters who think that the anti-communists are kind of paranoid. Um, first of all, when you say bean counters, I, I would use the term the, the technical intelligence collectors, the people who believe in satellite pictures and communications intelligence, that that will give you a better picture. Uh, I think generally you will find those people believe in human sources also. They do not believe, perhaps, uh, is much in covert action that we are going to be able to change things and influence events. Uh, I don't know that you've had a chance to read the book, but there are a lot of, to use your terminology, non-bean counters who are sources, people who believed uh, and believe now in covert action. No, I 
haven't read your book. I've read several reviews, and I've looked at it on the on the bookshelf, but I haven't had the money. <laughs> That's an but author's I, nightmare. Oh, go on, yeah, go, uh, go on, listen up. It only costs some twenty one dollars. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, sir, we've got a dash on. Thank you for the call, and on to another. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, I wondered if there are any sympathetic journalists to this cause of our Central Intelligence Agency. They seem only to pick apart the men that I have high respect mm. for and who seem to really put their lives mm. on the line. Well, I do not think that Bob Woodward is unsympathetic. I think he's, uh, as you said earlier, uh, the CIA is necessary to our national security. That's right, and I think the, the lady makes an excellent point. These people do put their lives on the line, many of them, and they do risk a great deal. And if they succeed, it, it's not going to hmm. be out in the open. They're not going to get a medal or praise uh, in public. But a lot of people who have read this say that it is basically a sympathetic portrait of Casey, and certainly it is a sympathetic portrait of the task of intelligence gathering. But if our caller wants... Uh an, an importantly placed Chicago, uh, Washington journalist even more sympathetic to the covert operations of the CIA, she might turn to the competing newspaper, the Washington Times, and its editor, Arnaud de Bourgrave. That's correct. Do we have any journalists who have really been in the intelligence agency at any time? Lots of them uh, come out of the CIA and start writing columns. We have a number of columnists who are... That's a cord wire. Yeah. Um, and I, as a citizen, as a very... Um, I mean, a, a not too knowledgeable citizen, really hope that from time to time that there will be some activities that I am not told about because I could not possibly evaluate these all that well. And I have sat back here for about 40 years and said, I really mm. do hope that there's someone out there who is doing something I don't know about. And then we have journalists who pick apart mm -hmm. many of these things that I think that we really... Uh, and we've we've had the Rosenbergs and uh, maybe one or two since, but we picked apart a good deal, many, many great but, people. But do you think it's possible for a journalist to monitor an agency like the I CIA? Why, but then I don't think that you should oh, do it all. Ma'am, hold a minute for a response, would you? No. It, it, is it possible, in your opinion, to monitor, to look, to scrutinize, but also be fair, present both sides? Uh, I'm not picking apart. This, uh, this institution, I'm attempting to explain it. Um, you're not going to fully convince that lady because that's part of the... She's voicing that general attitude which one hears and always has heard. I don't want to know all the complexities. Uh, I am just uh, an uninformed, ordinary person. Uh, there are things that I don't understand, and I'll leave it to the people who understand them. Okay, but the question is who understands it and can, in, in their understanding or their running of the agency... Can it run afoul, particularly of the law and our principles and values? And I say that we as reporters, authors, need to look at this. We need to look at everything for the following reasons to take the CIA. CIA's job, if they had a job, if that could be the definition could be reduced to one sentence. It's to prevent war. Very simple task, very important task one which I'm sure all people would agree with. To a certain extent, Casey used the CIA to start war, to go around, start these covert actions, support rebellions in various parts of the world. And I ask the question as a citizen and a journalist is, uh, which are the questions some of these 
people who were Casey's deputies and senior officials, members of Congress, people in the White House asked, will it work? How do you know? What is the alternative? If we get rid of Gaddafi or Ortega in Nicaragua, who are we going to get in his place? Is it going to be better? Are we going to control it? You can run down the list of these questions. And when you, you ask that of CIA people involved in these operations, they say, well, we don't know. You kind of, we hope it will work. The record is a record of mess, unfortunately, when we get involved in these things. If the record were different, I would be happy to say, gee, it's a great idea. Let's do it. We can reshape the world. The evidence is doesn't work. And a point to be added, I think, is that the fourth estate has become the fourth branch of government, and necessarily so. Things have become so complicated. There's so much incompetence in the midst of the complications, so much uh, uh, purely uh, self-aggrandizing power hunger, and so many interests represented in the making of uh, important policy, interests which are pursuing selfish and private uh, intentions and motivations, that, all of that being the case, We've got to have exposure. We've got to have somebody representing the public interest by poking in behind all the obfuscation and digging out necessary, important information for us. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And we who do it, authors, reporters, uh, people on radio, television, need to be scrutinized ourselves. Mm -hmm. We need to be put to the test. How do you know? Can you be sure? Does it check out? Let people challenge it, and then kind of as uh, wiser people than, than I certainly have said, the truth emerges mm -hmm. over time, and it does. And it's a process of disclosure, rebuttal, re-rebuttal. And much of the truth has emerged tonight, though for a far richer uh, exposure or contact with uh, a vast amount of information about the CIA during the last seven years. I'm happy to recommend Bob Woodward.